0: Hello, I'm Jean-Marc, astrologer and storyteller, born on the 4th of November 1961 at 9.30pm in a French city called L'Axou, L-A-X-O-U. On the 4th of November 2008, which was my 48th birthday, I was arrested by the police. It was extremely surprising. During the afternoon, I had been working with Eddie. Eddie had a house full of stuff, books, magazines, tools for all kinds of general or specialized uses. Every room in this house was crammed with heaps of objects, cardboards, half-destroyed cabinets and dust. Eddie didn't live there, there was no space left. He had to sell the house for some reason. He had hired me to help him with an impossible task for a compulsive hoarder, sorting out what to keep and what to throw and proceed. We were behind his house retrieving metallic bars, pipes and stuff from nettles and brambles, when my phone rang. It was the police. They wanted to talk with me. What was it about? They would tell me. Could I come over to Charing Cross Police Station? Yes, sure, I said. I'm working right now, but uh, when I'm finished? Yes, no problem, we're waiting for you. I wondered what this could be about. I had a strong confrontation with my housemates recently. I was renting a room in a house shared with others. One of the guys used to put the music so loud that the walls vibrated all day long, and when he came back from work late at night, he and his girlfriend argued very loudly. I was new in this house, but I couldn't stand this for very long. One of my problems is that they have always been very emotional. Confrontations and disagreements are far beyond the limits of my comfort zone. I am on principle soft and, let's admit it, weak cancer rising with a dominant moon in Libra. However, I am also a Scorpio. If I am forced to, I may act out some drama. As far as I know, drama is not punished by law. One morning, the guy put his loud music, I felt an emotional gazer of hot lava in my body. I stamped my feet like a herd of charging elephants and I went down the stairs shouting and banging at their door. The guy opened, hit me once at the jaw, but I didn't hit him. I'm very aware of what I'm doing when I'm looking like I am not. I just made my hysterical demonstration and from that day There was no more super loud music in the house. As for the rest, the arguments with the girlfriend, the cage of guinea pigs blocking the way between the table and the sink in the kitchen, I said nothing. The girlfriend mentioned the police to me, and another guy living in the house told me that I had hit the guy. This was not true. He hit me, not the other way, but the other one, he had witnessed nothing, but he could tell. <laughs> I'd let them talk. The walls of my room were not trembling anymore, and that's all I wanted. And then I got this phone call from the police, and I wondered if it was about that. Or maybe... I went, at the end of the afternoon. I hoped it wouldn't take too long. I was invited to a birthday meal. The inspector asked me, do you know A? I said yes. Did you meet her on the 19th of October? I said yes. And I was arrested, which I found weird because I was already in the police station and perfectly willing to have a little chat. A had said that I had assaulted her. A policeman registered my details. He wished me happy birthday. Another one listed the contents of my pockets, a big and tall one to pictures, face, profile, and fingerprints. The police inspector asked if I wanted a lawyer. I don't know. Is it free? Yes, it's free. You have the right to a lawyer. Well, Let's go for the full package then. Yes, I want a lawyer. They called one, who should arrive within a couple of hours, and they put me in a cell in the meantime. On the ceiling there was a sentence written in big letters about being tired of addiction and a number to call for help. The inspector asked me kindly if I wanted some tea. I said yes. Someone was crying in a neighboring cell. I started to sing. There is a great acoustic in an empty cell. It's not as great as an old Roman church, but there is good reverberation. Oh. Let's rewind. What happened with A? I met her at a language exchange club in London. In the last episode, I told you I came to London on the 23rd of May 2008 as transiting Pluto was squaring my moon and Neptune on my south node among other things. but As you know, if you are into astrology, these slow planets move forward, go retrograde in apparent motion, and then forward again. Pluto and Neptune were still on these sensitive placements, but there was more now. Saturn was transiting exactly on my natal moon. I'll remember the year to come as one of the most stressful of my life. My arrest felt like an enjoyable moment of spontaneous surrealism, but it was only the beginning. In my solar return chart, the ascendant fell in Capricorn, conjunct Pluto. Two months before the events, I had met A for the first time in a language exchange club. We spoke French half of the evening and English the other half. To have a social life when you are not fluent yet, uh, that's a good solution. I loved these weekly meetings in hotel bars. Once, I found myself sitting opposite to this woman in her thirties. We engaged in conversation. Where are you from? What do you do? Oh, you are a storyteller. Me too, I am an artist. I am a songwriter and a singer. Would you help me translate a song? Of course, I said. We had been hardly talking for 15 minutes when she showed me the text of a song that described feminine masturbation and orgasm in a bathtub. For most of my life I have felt rather ill at ease with my sexuality, and more especially with making the first steps and trauma associated with rejection and abuse, etc. Emotionally, I grew up sitting on an iceberg. So I don't know really how to be both hot and authentic at the same time. And here I was, me, the countryside boy, helping to translate sexually explicit content for a London girl. I was pretending that it was all fine and perfectly normal whilst giving grammatical advice, hiding the embarrassment. Thinking that I may have an opportunity to have sex, thinking that it's good to take up a challenge and step out of the comfort zone, things like that. I would learn, much later, that in her mind we were just talking poetry. We exchanged email addresses at the end of the evening. She wanted to read some of my stories. I have written maybe 40 or 45 stories since I found out storytelling was my art. Most of them are a mixture of childlike fantasies with attempts at deeper content, like the story of the little princess who locked herself up in a tower for the sole purpose of being rescued by a prince who actually never turns up. Or... The story of the king who falls into the sea and swears never to drink water again. Or, one of my favorites, the story of the beggars. One finds a big bag full of money in a bin, shouts, hooray, and to his mate, who wants to know what's going on, he tells the truth, because he knows the other won't believe him. After a few banknotes are shared, the story ends up sitting on the back of a pink elephant. I had two or three sexually explicit stories in my repertoire, because when you love writing, you try various styles. I sent her the story of the beggars and another one, called In Pound's Garden, in which I tell the story of a satyr and a nymph. I can't translate the story in English without losing the rhymes, the rhythm, the alliterations, and everything that should suggest scenes as could be painted. It's not vulgar, it's culture, it's mythology. Satyrs are male, sexually obsessed. They have human bodies with horns, hairy thighs, and hooves. Nymphs are female sexually attractive to the highest degree. They are as mythological as their male counterparts. With them they play at catch me if you can. In my story the satyr catches the nymph, rapes her, however in the process her no becomes a yes and at the end of the story the nymph is the one who runs after the satyr and she is quicker. It would obviously be very bad to claim that humans should behave like that. Mythologies are like fairy tales and dreams. They are products of the human psyche. They give insights into what exists deep down in the unconscious layers of the psyche. Human beings, of course, should behave in civilized ways. But there is nothing wrong with trying to understand nature, and understanding nature starts with mythological representations. Anyway, you may disagree with my understanding of Greek mythology, but that's not a crime. I shared this story with A because, well, uh, she started it with her song, We had exchanged our email addresses. She wanted to read some stories, so I picked up this one, along with the beggar who finds money in a bin and ends up writing a pink elephant. I sent the email, and I didn't get any answer. I thought it was just as well. I was not especially fond of this woman. Engaging with her was an opportunity to fight my fears more than anything else. Something I will ever be grateful for. A moment when my life turned into a piece of surrealistic art was when the police inspector, interviewing me after arresting me, read a bad translation into English of this story of rape of a nymph by a satyr. I was beaming. The English police was 3,000 years late in this case. However, this mythologically correct narration was not the only thing A complained about. Let me resume the story of our silly interactions. A didn't answer to my email when I sent the stories and she didn't turn up to the language exchange club the week after, so I forgot about her until she attended another language-exchange session a few weeks later. She seemed very happy to see me, sat at my table next to me. We quickly ignored others and kept talking, just the two of us, English, French, the artistic life and so on. It could have been friendly, but it also looked like we were just the two of us in a bubble, I settled in the maybe zone and watched for subtle clues. I may sound very ridiculous, and and yes, fear has rather comical effects, but you know, when you are a Pavlov dog, every time you approach a piece of attractive food, you get an electrical shock. Sometimes the voltage is really high, you're hungry so you keep feeling very attracted to the food. If you are this dog, you are in a very difficult place. That's what is called a neurosis. It works like that. If the pattern is within you, you don't know how you do it, but you keep repeating it. This mental state is also described in Greek mythology, by the way. It is the torment of Tantalus. Punished by the gods, Tantalus was thirsty. He was standing in a pool of clear water. But each time he tried to drink, when water touched his lips, it turned into sand. Can you imagine? When he kept his hands and took the water to his mouth, before trying to drink, he could enjoy the illusion of being about to drink. This was the only relief he could get, so he kept trying and feeling the burning despair of ever-renewed frustration. Water means more than sex. Water symbolizes feelings and emotional connections. Because sex involves being able to connect. That's the most important thing, actually, being able to connect. It's very difficult to stop repeating a pattern which has deep unconscious roots tracing back to a mother disappearing without explanations and without being able to go through the grieving process. I'm not complaining. I'm happy now. I don't need to complain. When I was a psychology student at university, a lecturer talked about all these boys who grew up without a father after World War I. Many fathers had died in the trenches. Studies have shown that in families where the mother talked about the father, the boys grew up with significantly less development disorders than in the families where the mothers never talked about the past. In these families, the boys didn't hear words like your father would have said this or your father used to love that. For these ones, building themselves psychologically was much more problematic. As for me, I didn't hear my father talk about my mother, about their life together, how she was and so on. I lived my childhood years as if nothing had happened. We didn't talk about these things. We didn't talk about feelings. We didn't touch one another. There were no demonstrations of affection. We were so reserved. Negative emotions found their way, but the positive ones would have been so embarrassing. So I was talking with A at the language exchange club with my emotional straitjacket on and trying my best to behave confidently. I waited to see where things would go. We were talking, just the two of us, as if nothing else mattered in the room our legs touched under the table you know when four or five persons sit on high stools around a small round table such thing can happen our legs touched and it took a certain time before we broke this contact that's a clue i walked with her in the street at the end of the meeting At a crossroad, I would turn right towards the underground station. I asked, are you coming with me? Which could have meant walking with me to the station, or more, maybe. She said no, home was the other way for her. My question would be read out loud in court as one of the very inappropriate things I did. When parting, she gave me a CD. Hot stuff, a recording of the song, I helped to translate the other day. Masturbation and orgasm in the bathtub, music and lyrics by A. A few days later, then, I sent an email to invite her out. I suppose that's how you do. How about a chat over glass? She said yes. We went to a crowded and noisy bar in Covent Garden. We found a place in the middle of the room, as far away from the loudspeakers as possible. She sat next to me. We translated another text of hers, not a hot one like the other. We were sitting close. I stroked her hair. That's how you do when you're not too sure. You try something soft and you see if you are asked to stop or no. She let me do. We all have our problems. I put an arm around her shoulder and approached my face for a kiss. She turned her head the other way, exposing her neck. I kissed her neck, but then she didn't seem pleased. I insisted a little bit, with words. She pulled her chair and went to sit on the other side of the table. We were in the middle of a crowded bar, in sight of the counter. Waiters were walking between the tables. When the police would come over to inquire, nobody would remember that anything had happened. And of course, because nothing did. I didn't hold her neck in an arm lock. I didn't force a kiss. And she was already seeing an osteopath before we met. Soon, we decided that it was time to go. She walked with me to the nearby underground station, I came home feeling I had wasted my time and that I would just forget about this pathetic evening. But at least I had ventured out of my comfort zone. Two days later, I receive an email from her. I read. The text I had helped to translate on our meeting was on her blog with a credit to me. I click on the link. I get a shock. The first thing I see popping on the screen is a picture of a woman in underwear, laying on a bed and surrounded with rose petals. The face can't be seen, and I wonder, is this her? It could have been. Her blog was full of suggestive, sensual and erotic pictures as illustrations of her writings. I'm such an idiot. Or at least I was. I hope I am a little bit less one now. I thought, I thought that a woman who didn't want to be kissed two days before, but then sends a link to an erotic picture, is a woman who changed her mind. I answered kindly, suggesting that sometimes we are a little bit conflicted inside about what we want, don't you think so? We exchange three or four emails, me trying to bring about some kind of straightforwardness to the exchange, her keeping being elusive and ambiguous, ignoring the questions and making comments about whatever else, being artists or stuff. If you want to trigger me, behave as if I didn't ask a question when I asked one. If you want to trigger me a lot, do it two or three times in a row. It is always possible to say, sorry, I don't want to answer this question, because saying this is an answer. But behaving as if there was no question when there was one is not my idea of an honest answer. I wrote the email I shouldn't have. I decided to be completely open. I started to be very metaphorical. Years before, I had written a story, uh, the story of a seagull covered with oil trying to take off, but in vain. And this story was a way to talk about, about depression, about the emotional straitjacket, and about a world that does not even acknowledge that you have a real problem when you're struggling with your emotions and your inhibitions and your neurosis and so on. So in the email to A, I started to use the metaphor of the bird covered with oil to try to explain how awkward I felt, but as I was writing, I felt how easily all what I was trying to convey could be treated as just poetry. Very nice indeed. And I had enough. I wanted to be heard and understood. My emotional levels flared up, And I started to describe a memory, being forced as a small child with an enema syringe by my stepmother and asking, is this a rape? If the parent believes that it is necessary to push this thing up the child's arse to solve a problem like constipation, is this a rape? But if the child fights and feels the perverse pleasure of overpowering him, is this a rape? And if the child is always mocked, belittled, humiliated, is this a rape? I asked the question three or four times like a litany. I don't remember how I concluded. I sent the email knowing that I was slapping her in the face. But I was hundred miles away to imagine that this could be understood as a threat. I was talking about me. I was showing what impact her little games had on my emotions. This was not very wise indeed. But when you go through life feeling locked up within yourself, sometimes you try to break through the wall. When you go through life feeling locked up within yourself, you don't believe that whatever you may say can have much of an impact. You are the invisible one, making dramatic movements in the air, hoping someone will notice a slight breeze. But sometimes people don't see how invisible you are, how invisible you believe you are. You may wonder how I managed to know any woman at all in my life, but sometimes it happened. Sometimes I found myself at the right place, with the right person, at the right time. And something happened. And I didn't do it really on purpose. Or I was a bit drunk and it helped. Or I wrote something romantic and sent it. (laughs) I believed normal people are able to connect at all times with the plenty more fish there are in the sea. So I tried hard to be normal. I believed it was a question of daring more, but I was mostly not attractive enough. (laughs) A poor emotional health it's like being ugly. It's not sexy. Furthermore, as the saying goes, like attracts like. I have noticed that the woman I attracted into my life, without doing it on purpose, had, most of the time, a very poor emotional health as well, and histories of abuse, violence, or neglect. Actually, here is the best alternative to a formal diagnosis, for your mental health, if you're questioning. Ask yourself, what kind of people do I easily connect with? If the answer is fucked up people, you can be sure that you are one. Healing is always possible, but uh, it can be a long path. I didn't get any answer from A to my email, and the next time I checked her blog, ah, I was blocked. I carried on with my life, and two weeks later, for my birthday, I was invited to have a chat at the police station. When there I was arrested, I went through all the interesting procedure, put in a cell, waiting for the legal aid lawyer to arrive. The lawyer was a young woman, looking tired, dragging a suitcase. We went in a room with a translator. She explained to me, what the complaint was exactly. A had shown only my emails to the police and not hers. You remember, she contacted me first after our pathetic date. But of course, without her emails, my answers alone looked like uh, harassment. She said I had assaulted her, forced a kiss, holding her neck in an arm lock, which caused her pain, and she had to seek for treatment. It felt weird. The lawyer asked me to give my account of the facts. I was in this kind of state where you can't stop talking, 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 explaining. After a while, the lawyer started to yawn. She was not sure whether I was telling the truth to her or not, and I sounded like I was not in control of my verbal outpouring. She advised me to answer no comment to all the questions the police would ask, because whatever one says during an interview under arrest is recorded and you can't take it back. Under pressure, you may be tricked into saying things that could later be used against you. She told me that the best course of action is to say nothing, and then you get time to prepare your defense. So I served them the no comment litany, as was my right. I was thinking of a French song by Serge Gainsbourg. No comment. They told me, the police, that they would see me again two weeks later. Once home, I managed to retrieve all the emails we had exchanged in the mailbox bin which proved that her version of the facts was far from exact. But the next time I came to the police station, there was no second interview. The inspector just talked briefly to the lawyer, and I found myself charged with sexual assault, bodily harm, and harassment. It would take exactly one year and one week before I left the Crown Court, cleared of all charges, with only a bindover, which is not a conviction, but just the court telling me to keep the peace and not meet A, just in case I felt like it. This was needed to satisfy the Crown Prosecution Service. They would have dropped the case altogether, but there was this email. The whole procedure is a long and slow process. I had to go twice at the magistrate court, the first time only to say my name and that yes, I was me, and the other to plead not guilty. In spite of the stress, I also loved the experience. It's like a guided visit with the best view. The man before me, on the first session, looked like a beggar looking like Santa Claus. He had a long grey beard and stage presence. He arrived with his arms wide open and said, All right, I won't do it again, I swear. The judge, a woman looking like a little mouse, said, It's not the first time we are going to send you to prison for that. He got two weeks. When it was my turn, the prosecutor, a man I could see only from behind, wanted me to be kept in custody. I don't think he meant it. The process is a little bit like bartering. The seller announces a high price and the defense takes it from there. Still, standing in a cubicle and hearing a grey coat asking for you to be jailed makes you feel deep down the rabbit hole. My barrister argued that I had stopped interacting with the complainant for two weeks before being arrested, so the request of the prosecution was rejected. Given that I pleaded not guilty, my case was under the jurisdiction of the Crown Court. The first meetings with the solicitors and barristers made me feel like I was falling in the void. They tested me to be sure I was telling them the truth, but I didn't understand what they were doing. It just seemed to me that they didn't care, didn't register what I was telling them, and had not much time to waste, with a small fish on legal aid like me. One day, I was asked to sign a document which should be sent to the prosecution in preparation for the trial. In it should have been my version of the fact. The barrister had written that I acknowledged having kissed the complainant. I didn't sign, but I felt exhausted, I managed to drag myself to another law firm. They started the proceedings to transfer my case, but the judge didn't allow it. So I was stuck with the first I got, but when I met them again, I was told by the solicitor that the barrister believed me, and I started to feel supported eventually, after a few months. This year, I fell into a social void. I was kicked out of the language exchange club, and of another place where I was taking a class. Most people I knew distanced themselves from me. For many there is no smoke without a fire. On principle you're considered innocent until proved guilty, but people's minds don't work that way. With those I could still meet, that is mostly my sister. I couldn't hold a simple conversation because there was no space left in my mind for anything else than this crazy story going round and round in circles. This year, I also heard on the BBC the story of Warren Blackwell who was freed from jail with apologies from the police after spending three years behind bars. The case was similar to mine. Blackwell had described an apology from the police as too little, too late. That's reassuring. My trial was to be held exactly one year after my arrest, the day of my next birthday. Uranus had just reached my MC. A sent a medical certificate saying that she couldn't attend. The trial was adjourned to the week after. The week after, She sent a medical certificate again. The court managed to close the case. I said thank you. I felt the weight of the charges literally lifted from my shoulders. You are allowed to think I was emotionally stupid, because I was. Emotional needs are real. If you are not fed, you don't grow up to become healthy and strong. You can be part-time smart enough and part-time an idiot when you are craving for connection. The more you crave, the less you find. The less you find, the more you crave. You are a fish out of the water learning to breathe air. The year after, for my Chiron return, I found out that free counseling from students in their last year was offered to whoever might want it in a caravan sit in the yard of St. James Church in Piccadilly. I met Jan, a man roughly my age. I would talk to him over a few years. I'm deeply grateful. The first and maybe the only necessary ingredient to heal emotional pain is to be heard and understood in a friendly way by another human being. Beyond that, the most essential connection is with spirit. That's the only one that never dies.